Thanks, Amy. In uh, so many ways, a simple Bible reading, but quite profound words that we are going to consider this morning. Let me add my word of welcome, uh, along with Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and my name's Ryan. For any who are new or visiting, it's great to have you with us. And we are, at the moment, studying these Beatitudes, the second of which Amy just read for us. These simple, brief statements of our Lord Jesus at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount are his sayings of supreme blessedness. That's what the word Beatitudes means, supreme blessedness. And last week, as we commenced our study on these sayings, Andrew highlighted that the teachings here of Jesus about true blessedness are completely at odds with the teachings of the rest of the world. What Jesus describes as the state of blessing for his disciples is not what we would naturally consider to be a blessed state, worldly speaking. Furthermore, we considered that these supreme blessings speak to more than just happiness and feelings. They speak to being stood in the favor of God to be looked at favorably by God himself. And when we come to today's beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, I trust that you can already see that those things we established last week ring true here as well. Mourning by its very nature is grief and pain. When we hear the word mourn, no doubt we associate it with loss, with trauma, with profound heartache and deep, deep sorrow. Many of us know what it is to mourn in a worldly sense. Even this morning, some of us are in worldly mourning. Despair at the loss of a loved one, at the change of a circumstance, at uncertainty in life. We know what it is to mourn. And the suggestion that such a disposition is a blessed one almost seems foolish. Our world tells us that we should all be happy all of the time and that when we're not happy, it's simply because we lack the latest product or more money or more enjoyment, that with the right health and wealth and attitudes, we can be happy all the time, that we can avoid hardship, that we can avoid struggle. And we're taught when it comes to grief and mourning in this world that though they are an accepted part of life, They are something to be avoided wherever possible and merely tolerated at best. No one, perhaps outside of the disciples of Jesus, would naturally think of mourning as a blessed state. 
even when Jesus adds his rationale in this beatitude, it still doesn't seem to sit quite right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, says Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, the worldly part of you cries out, well, I'd just rather not be discomforted in the first place. Being comforted seems little reward for grief. It sounds a little like saying you're so lucky to be experiencing pain. You get to enjoy treatment. Lucky you broke your arm. You can experience our wonderful hospital system. It just sounds foolish. Lucky you're in such grief and despair. You're getting all the attention. People are caring for you. How blessed are you? When all the while most of us would be thinking, I'd rather have dot, dot, dot back. I'd rather have my health back. I'd rather have my spouse back, my child back. Comfort may seem somewhat underrated to those who are mourning. And taken at surface level, I dare say we can all now see the confusion that this beatitude might promote. So how are we to understand what Jesus is actually saying? Well, firstly, we need to remember that when Jesus speaks these Beatitudes, he is not offering worldly platitudes. He is not offering human wisdom. He's speaking spiritual truth, profound spiritual realities, not superficial statements. These words are designed to explain kingdom life to kingdom people. They are taught to his disciples, not just the twelve, but all his disciples who've gathered at his feet. Indeed, they are words for you today and me if we are his disciples. They are spiritual realities also because the word blessed teaches that they are. To be blessed requires being linked to God. And so these statements are godly statements, spiritual truths. They go beyond our worldly realities. And when we understand that Christ is speaking spiritual truths in these Beatitudes, it unlocks for us a deeper meaning in all of these statements. Perhaps none more so than this. Blessed are those who mourn. So then, what is it to mourn spiritually? Firstly, let me say that spiritual mourning is the outworking of a poor spirit. If you were here last week, Andrew very helpfully explained what it means to see ourselves as spiritually poor. To realize that we have not in any way earned the grace of God. That our status as spiritual beings is bankruptcy. And only in Christ's goodness can we be brought into his kingdom. 
Spiritual mourning is the outworking of that recognition. Having acknowledged our status as spiritually bankrupt, mourning is the emotional counterpart to that acknowledgement. When we see ourselves as poor in spirit, when we recognize what we truly are, our emotional and worldly response, our practical response, is grief, is mourning. Mourning over our sinful state. And I'm going to say here at this point in the sermon, yes, that is a one-time thing. But it is also an ongoing circumstance. There is a moment, I trust, that many of you would recall for yourself when you realized the depth of your sin and that Jesus was the only way to see yourself out of that state, to be brought from a spiritual bankruptcy to living in the grace of God. And in that moment, perhaps you prayed a prayer or committed your life or realized that Jesus was calling you to be his. There is an initial moment where we grieve our sin. But what Jesus is talking about here in this beatitude is much more the ongoing state of grief and mourning for sin. And the reason I say this is because the Beatitudes are about kingdom life. They are not about the initial moment of transition into the kingdom alone, but what life looks like for the disciple who is a child of the king. These are the ongoing realities of the spiritual life. And for this beatitude in particular, we know that Jesus is speaking of the ongoing nature of such things because in a few moments' time in the Sermon on the Mount, he will remind and teach the disciples that they must pray daily to be forgiven for their transgressions. It is an ongoing part of the spiritual life. Friends, I want you to picture this trying to describe the the call and the ongoing nature of such things with a bit of an image for you. Before Christ, you and I were drowning in a sea of sin. Tossed here and there by the waves, we were destined to destruction. And when Christ calls us out of that life, It is as if he places us in a vessel, a ship headed for the promised shores of heaven. But our vessels are not yet perfected. And as we traverse this journey, our worldly vessels still leak. Sin still finds its way into our life. Now, Make no mistake, friends, these are secure vessels. They will reach their destination. Christ has promised as much. But on their way, the leaks may hinder our progress. They may weigh us down and torment us. Think of grief and mourning over sin as the bailing out of the water that has entered your vessel. Leaks 
must be plugged, and that is the mortification, the killing of sin. And waters bailed out the mourning and confession of that which has crept into our lives. When we think of it not as a matter of ongoing salvation, that's secure, but of a matter of progressing well in the Christian life, I want to suggest that there are three ways, at least, that we should be mourning our sin. Three ways, at least, that we should mourn our sin. Firstly, we must mourn our ongoing sin as an act of hostility and hatred of God. We must mourn our ongoing sin as an act of hostility and hatred of our God. Sin, we know, is the missing of God's perfection. In archery, the same term could be used in ancient Greece for missing the bullseye. Sin is also described as rebellion against God, as shunning his law and his rule. In 1 John 3 verse 4, the disciple John writes, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that we might, he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has seen him or known him. Our scriptures make clear that sin is rebellion against God, that it is an act of hostility against his declared order and his character. Sin is hatred of God and God's ways. And when we see it as it truly is, we should grieve it deeply. The Puritan Ralph Venning and another author building on his work describes it like this. In short, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience. It's the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. We may go on and say it is the umbraiding of his providence, the scoff of his promise and reproach of his wisdom. And as is said of the man of lawlessness, it opposes and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that it sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Sin in our lives supplants the right place of God. It draws us to worship other things, to honor idols, and ourselves before our God. When we recognize sin for what it truly is, even in its lingering remnants working their way into our now saved lives, it should drive us to our knees in grief and in spiritual mourning. Secondly, we must mourn sin as the height of ingratitude. If you are 
a disciple of Jesus, if you've been called out of this world and into his kingdom, you have much to be thankful for. Sin is the height of ingratitude for one who has been set free from sin. Friends, you know the cost of that freedom. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And what was that price, friends? The cost that set us free from sin? Christ himself and his blood shed for us. 1 Peter 1.18 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, you and I have been redeemed, purchased. And this is joyous news. But consider the cost. Our own dear Lord, our sin exacts its toll in the blood of our beloved Saviour. It's costly. And I would urge all of us this morning to recognise that the wounds of a friend are far worse than the wounds of an enemy. Those who sin against God, who do not know him, grieve him, yes, but those who know the cost and continue anyway. What grief that must bring to our Lord and his Holy Spirit, with whom he has sealed us for the day of redemption. Brothers and sisters, if you discovered that you had hurt an earthly friend, we are quickly grieved. We are mournful. Sorry. How could we be less so with God? How could we take sin lightly when its cost is Christ's own blood? Thirdly, brothers and sisters, we must mourn for sin as it deprives us. Sin leaking into our vessels deprives us. It draws our attention from our tasks. It waylays us and slows us down. It hinders our relationship with God. It puts a division between us and him. And if you think anecdotally to your own life, I dare say you will see the truth in this assessment. It's often when we're least attentive in our faith, when we're caught up in sin. 
It's often when we're stuck in sin that we cease to pray, to read our Bibles, to meditate on God and His Spirit. It's often when we're sinning that we fail to meet together, to share with one another. Unresolved sin is a barrier to Christ. When Mary came upon the empty tomb, not yet knowing Christ had risen, this was her lament. They have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. She grieved that she could not find Jesus. When sin clouds our vision of Christ, we too should grieve the very same, that we cannot find him. But just as Christ came to Mary in her moment of despair, so it is that he meets us in our most desperate grief and mourning. And it is this meeting of Christ in this place of grief that allows us to say it is good to mourn. It makes us understand why Jesus can say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Christ himself brings the comfort to those who mourn their sinfulness. For mourning leads to repentance and repentance to forgiveness. And that well does not run dry. True mourning of our sin, true spiritual mourning sends our souls to God drives us toward the only one who can offer forgiveness and comfort. Like the prodigal of Luke 15, we come saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's repentance. And as the father welcomes the prodigal back, so too we find comfort in being restored before our God. Friends, this call to comfort and repentance is riddled through our scriptures. It is not hard to find. Joel 2, for example, one of the minor prophets, says in verse 12, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may return and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Joel, a prophet in the midst of Israel's darkest chapters, tells them even then if they would turn to God, they would find comfort and forgiveness. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. What promises of restoration and forgiveness there are in our scriptures. 
what hope there is for the one who mourns their sin and turns to Christ the Savior. Hope for the downcast and true comfort for those who mourn. Brothers and sisters, when we see sin for what it is, when we realize its cost, when we grieve our contribution to the death of Christ, when we turn to God in despair and repentance, there is comfort, true comfort in knowing And that comfort, friends, extends beyond our personal circumstance. Seeing sinners forgiven, seeing people mourn sin and come to a place of forgiveness and repentance should bring joy not just to the sinner, but to the kingdom of heaven. One example of this is found in 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, please come with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is now writing his at least second letter to the church in Corinth. And his first, you may know, was something of a rebuke. Helping Corinth to see their sin. And as they now repent and turn once more to Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 from verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Look how much Corinth had turned around by seeing their sin, mourning spiritually for their sin, and then turning to God. Yes, they experienced the joy of forgiveness, but it changed their lives. It made them earnest to pursue their God, eager to clear themselves and mortify sin. They became indignant with the state of the world and with their own sinfulness, alarmed by what was going on around them, and they longed to see the world how it should be. They were ready to see God's justice done. This stirred up joy for Paul and all his companions, indeed for the whole church. When we mourn, when we come to God in repentance and when we are restored and revitalized and renewed once more, it is a joyous event, not just for us, but for the kingdom. 
Friends, I want to close this message this morning with a few words of caution. I can feel it in this room that we are aware of just how true it is that we must mourn our ongoing sin, that we must bail out those waters and plug those leaks. But I want to caution us that there are a few instances where mourning is not really mourning. Firstly, let me say that in following Christ, it will cost you worldly pleasures. As we continue in the Beatitudes, you will see that it will cost us much to follow Christ. Lamenting the loss of those worldly things and lamenting the absence of worldly comfort is not spiritual mourning. The path of righteousness is a hard one. It's the narrow road that Christ describes, and it's not without its torment. Grieving that our true spirituality has us in worldly discomfort is not what Christ is speaking of. That would be a misplaced sorrow indeed. Secondly, mourning the consequence of sin rather than sin itself is not spiritual mourning. You know the classic parental saying, you're not sorry, you're only sorry you got caught? It rings true in the spiritual realm as well. Mourning the consequence of sin rather than the sin itself is not true spiritual mourning. Pharaoh, for example, grieved the plagues that befell his people. He grieved that his land cried out but he did not grieve his sin or his hardened heart. We too may grieve that sin has damaged relationships, that it has ruined our status or our own health and well-being. But if we are not grieving the root cause, the sin itself, we have missed what Christ is saying here. We must grieve the sin and not the consequence of our sin. And thirdly, mourning only on a surface level is not truly mourning. Another one of those classic parenting faux pas that I know I've made, when a child has wronged another and you urge them to say you're sorry, and they do, and you know they're not, but, you know, it's done, so whatever. That is not what Christ requires of us. To simply say we're sorry, to go through the motions, to repeat the prayers, the confessions, to take communion month by month without pausing to truly think. That is not what Christ desires. That is surface level. And Christ has never been concerned with the surface things. Matthew 23, 25. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees! First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. When we go through the motions, when we confess our sin and continue on in it, when we pray for forgiveness but don't seek to make restitution or to mortify sin in our lives, it is like we are whitewashing our tombs. We are dealing with the surface and not the internal things. That is not true spiritual mourning. True spiritual mourning has us recognize sin for what it is, grieve it, and turn to God in repentance. It is there that we embrace his forgiveness and experience what it means to be comforted and truly blessed. Friends, long for the day when our broken, leaky vessels shall land on the shores of heaven, when such things will no longer be required, daily repentance, confession, seeking forgiveness, for we will have arrived and in God's grace be free of sin. We will know the fulfillment of what it is to be comforted. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In that future state, friends, there will be no more need to grieve our sin, to mourn, to repent, for all those things will be done away with. Until then, let us as kingdom people heed the words of our Lord and Saviour. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray that God might do this work in we, his people. Would you join with me in prayer? Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, you are perfection, holiness, righteousness, sinlessness. There is no blemish in you. And this morning, Father, we are so acutely aware of how far from your perfection we sinful people are. And yet in your mercy, 
in your goodness, in your grace, and in your pleasure, you have seen fit to save us, to draw us out of this world of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. And so we ask, Lord, that as those who know salvation, those who still struggle with sin, help us to mourn when we sin against you. Help us not to take lightly our rebellion, our ongoing depravity. Help us to come before you in confession and in repentance, truly mourning when we transgress. But we thank you, Lord, that Christ is sufficient that he has paid for all our sins and that in him we can know forgiveness. We pray this morning that you would indeed forgive us where we sin against you and enable us to kill the sin in our lives that we might more fully glorify our Lord, that we might more rightly honour our Saviour, that our journey and passage to heaven might be a smoother one. We ask that as we do this, we who mourn would know your comfort and the blessing that it is to be yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.